It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, January the 4th, 2022. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Welcome. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m., Eastern Time, Happy New Year. It's cold and chilly, but not as bad as yesterday here in Washington, D.C. Our website at the show is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day. Let me tell you about what we have in store for you on today's edition of the program. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment. Later this hour, U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican, Florida, NRSC Chairman, His first big pitch to voters in 2022, this election year, about the stakes in the U.S. Senate elections coming up in November. We'll talk to Senator Scott about that. In the next hour, four-star General Jack Keane retired, our colleague here at Fox News, on what Russia is up to on the border of Ukraine. Is that conflict, that invasion, imminent? Is it inevitable? What can or should the United States do? We'll talk to General Keene about that. Maybe get into China as well if we have time. And in our final hour, Dr. Manny Alvarez. I have a few new curiosities about COVID, Omicron, the big surge in cases, just exploding records in terms of case counts, but much better news on the severity front. We'll get into some of that with Dr. Manny Alvarez in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Let's bring you stats. 56.1 million Americans have tested positive for COVID over the course of this entire pandemic. That's cumulatively. It's a low ball number. A lot of tests aren't reported to the government, right? You take a home test and you see that you're positive. That doesn't actually go into that number. Of course, in the early days, there were very few tests to be had at all. Sort of feels strangely familiar. I'll have more to say about that later. So that's a low ball number. It's much, much higher, the reality of cases in this country over the last almost two years. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in the United States, since early 2020, 826,063. Another big day on Wall Street. The Dow currently up 262 points. It's trading at 36,846. I mean, the record close yesterday Looks like they might be on track to do the same again, uh, at least for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And we will bring you that final number when the markets close in New York, a little under an hour from right now. With that, let's get to our first guest. He is Rich Edson, Fox News Channel's senior national correspondent. He has been covering a story and tracking a story just outside Washington, D.C., on Route 95, Interstate 95 in Virginia. Many drivers have been stuck on that highway for just stunning amounts of time, including for more than 19 hours, a United States senator trying to drive back to Washington, D.C. Good afternoon, Rich. Happy New Year to you. What can you tell us? What's the latest on this mess in Virginia? 
Happy New Year, Guy. And, you know, you've still got, according to state officials, crews that are trying to dig this highway out. The problem is that starting with this snow yesterday, which started as a bit of a rain here in the D.C. area, all of this snow started heavy, wet snow, and then there came the jackknife trucks, the cars, the accidents, and it shut down this stretch of I-95 around Fredericksburg, Virginia, which typically, I don't know, takes about an hour to get to from Washington, D.C. Um, you've had people, hundreds of people, who have just been tweeting all night long saying that they were running out of gas, that they have been stuck, they have been waiting for someone to come and give them food to uh, these promised warming shelters that they're hearing from the, the state of Virginia. And so uh, what we're hearing is that the governor telling the uh, Washington Post, uh, Governor Ralph Northam, that they're hoping to get I-95 open by tonight uh, and that some folks were beginning to crawl off the highway, slowly begin to move if they, if they dislodge these trucks, but it's still a mess down there. Oh, my word. So how many hours into this are we right now? If they're hoping that they will get it cleared up by tonight, at that point, it'd be, what, well over 24 hours of this, right? I mean, you have to think about around 11 o'clock, maybe 10 o'clock yesterday morning, is when it started to become impassable. Tim Kaine tweeted earlier this morning that he had been stuck for 19 hours. Right. Uh, and then I believe was still stuck even even longer than that. So, I mean, this is something that has been ongoing for if if they hit the governor's target and they can open up the highway. Now, they said that they are going to keep the highway closed about a 50-mile stretch down there for some time, or at least part of that 50-mile stretch, so that they can, they can make sure that anybody who's on the side of the road, make sure everybody's okay before they allow people back on that highway. But if they don't open it until this evening, you are talking about 36 hours plus wow. that there has been an issue on this stretch of road. There are reports, of course, of people running out of gas. It was frigid at night, so there's a concern there. There's people thirsty, people hungry, people have to go to the bathroom. I mean, it has to be terrifying if you've got kids in your car and you're stuck, let's say, you know, right behind a tractor trailer. You have not moved in 15 hours. There seems to be no help forthcoming. I mean, it's kind of a nightmare scenario. I know that there are still people in harm's way right now, so it's it's premature to really get too far down the path of blame game here. But has there been any question or any addressing of this issue from the state of Virginia, from Governor Northam and his office, about how it is that, you know, this was a fairly significant snowfall, but nothing unprecedented. It's not like Virginia or Washington, D.C. has never seen snow before. It was forecast snow. It wasn't a freak snowstorm out of nowhere. Is there any explanation for why it was allowed to get this bad, how the roads weren't perhaps pre-treated and salted and that sort of thing? Have they talked about any of that yet, or are they just too busy dealing with the crisis to look at that yet? They have, and they've been asked repeatedly about this because, as you know, not only in the D.C. area are we usually unprepared for this type of snow, but we get this type of snow. It doesn't happen all the time, but everybody, you know, we have people in the D.C. Bureau uh, who are saying, we remember people who were leaving their cars a decade ago on the GW Parkway when this happened and spent the night in their cars or abandoned their cars and went back to them the next day. So this is something that is not unique for the region. Although... 
Although, Rich, I just want to, because I think you're talking about Snowmageddon or Snowpocalypse, whatever that particular yeah. term was <laughs> that year. I actually missed, because it was back-to-back years, if memory serves. One was in Chicago. Yeah. It was crazy. Lakeshore Drive, people, it was like walls of snow. I missed that by a year because I moved to D.C., which had the previous, and, and I might be getting it slightly wrong, but I was able to evade both of those insane snow events. Snowmageddon, Snowpocalypse was like uh, biblical in nature. Yes. It was absolutely shocking how much snow there was. That was not the case in this area yesterday. I mean, it was a heavy snowfall. It was, you know, significant, but it was not crazy. That seems like a pretty significant difference here, and that would probably fuel some of these questions about the failure. It's not like we got seven feet of snow out of nowhere. It was, you know, seven to nine inches of snow. It's yeah. not, it, that, that should be handleable. They, their justification, or they justified the response in saying that when they went to pre-treat the road, it was raining, and this snow began as rain, and then they got heavy, wet snow, and so it had washed away all the pre-treatment, and then the snow started abruptly, and then they got a lot of snow in a short amount of time. And that is there, which sort of mirrors, there was one, I think they called it commutageddon, from a decade ago, whenever this was, where it was this snowstorm, this one came up on us somewhat seemingly out of nowhere where we got this wet, heavy snow during the, the evening commute and people were slip sliding everywhere. Um, there is also the issue of, and you know, you know, Guy, you and I know this from, from being from Jersey, um, when it starts to snow, the plows are out and they're out all the time and they're constantly plowing the road. Not that you, it's unheard of in the Northeast to not have your snow plowed. Um, but there are plenty of people who live in D.C. who have yet to see a plow yes. 24 hours after the snow start, stopped. And that's not just this Virginia issue. That's a D.C. issue as well. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's this quasi-annual tradition of D.C. acting as if we have never had a significant snowfall in the history of this metropolitan area and having a total meltdown in the middle of one. It's like, what, what does it take to have a government prepared to deal with something like this? And I guess, obviously, it's going to be more pain for more people yet again. Rich Edson, hopefully they are able to follow through and get this thing cleared up in the next couple of hours, maybe even before nightfall again. And hopefully folks who have been stranded are doing okay because there would be health concerns, of course, uh, beyond just the massive, massive inconvenience. I know you're following the story very closely. We appreciate your report. And if there are major developments, we'll be in touch. Great. Thanks, Guy. Rich Edson, national correspondent, senior national correspondent at Fox News. I have some more thoughts on this about the role of government about what has happened here, about the reaction of some in the media. And I will get to all of that as soon as we come back. It's a big show ahead. Senator Rick Scott this hour, General Keene later, Dr. Manny later. We hope you are with us for the full three hours every day. GuyBensonShow.com. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. What it is. I'm going to level with you guys. Getting old sucks. One day you wake up and you just don't feel like yourself. Low energy, feeling cranky. Believe it or not, fellas, even problems in the bedroom. I know. Turns out these symptoms are a result of our lower testosterone. 
Now there's a solution. Nugenics Total Tea made with a powerful testosterone booster. Nugenics Total Tea ignites the fire inside of you and you get to feel like your old self again. With hundreds of five-star reviews from real customers like myself, Nugenics Total Tea really works. The product is now new and improved with Tesnar, a testosterone-boosting extract that increases vitality, adds stamina, and wipes out everyday fatigue. Get back to a better you with Nugenics Total Tea. Get a complimentary bottle of Nugenics Total Tea when you text Tyrus, T-Y-R-U-S, to 231-231. Text now and we'll add in a bottle of Nugenics Thermal X, our most powerful fat incinerator on the house just text tyrus to 231-231 that's nugenics total t and nugenics thermal x on us just pay shipping and handling texting enrolls you into a reoccurring automated text messages consent not required to purchase message and data rates may apply i've got benson we're back and in our opening segment we had rich edson our colleague talk about this pretty shocking mess on i-95 in virginia where countless motorists have been stranded for hours and hours, like 24 hours in some cases. First of all, this is just an absolute nightmare. I am someone who gets very, very antsy in traffic. I'm not patient in traffic. I also hate getting stranded anywhere, like an airport, where you're inside, you have access to food and restrooms and that sort of thing. This is... Almost a worst-case scenario, where you are stuck in your car with your fuel dwindling in the middle of a snowstorm with nowhere to go for a day. And if you've got kids with you, I mean, elderly people with you, you're taking care of a parent or a grandparent, I mean, it's just really scary. As I mentioned to Rich, I don't want to take this opportunity to do a bunch of partisan finger-pointing because people are still in the middle of this and suffering. I also think, simultaneously, that there has to be a whole series of questions asked about government performance and accountability and what the job of the government is. We knew the storm was coming. It was in the forecast. There were Weather warnings and advisories and all that stuff. Yes, there was a decent amount of snow, especially for this area. I think we got six or seven inches here. It was wet. It was heavy. It took down one of our trees, as I mentioned on the show yesterday. And I made a joke about it on Special Report last night on the TV side. But we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming, and so, of course, did government officials. And yet they were caught flat-footed. They didn't pre-treat the roads properly. Uh, properly, obviously, whatever efforts they were undertaking to deal with the problem overnight were halting and insufficient at best, because the snow stopped, by the way. It's not like this was one of those snowstorms where it snowed and snowed for 30 consecutive hours, and there was never a respite, and you could never you know, get a hold on it because any work you would do to plow or shovel, it would just get filled right back in. That's not what happened. It snowed pretty hard for a couple of hours. It accumulated a decent amount. Then it stopped. And yet we were seeing tweets, even from Democratic U.S. Senator Tim Kaine this morning, who'd been in his car, and it's such a claustrophobic photo with the 18-wheelers all around him, 
just sitting there, he said, for 19 hours. And that's a senator. So he'd probably have you know, extra ability maybe to get some help compared to just average folks. Now, Ralph Northam is the governor of Virginia. You probably know my thoughts on him. Not a fan. I will note quickly, as an aside, there were some journalists, this is so predictable, knee-jerk trying to blame this on Glenn Youngkin, who is the governor-elect in Virginia. Right In their minds, Youngkin won the election back in November, and now he must be governor, and now this bad thing is happening. By the way, it's like a few weeks into his term. The government being unprepared would not be a good look, but would also be very early days. So they want to pile on, here's the little memo that I guess they didn't bother to look up in some of these cases. He's not governor yet. He doesn't get sworn in until midway through this month. So this is the Ralph Northam show. I don't know if he stopped caring, stopped trying after his party lost. I have no idea what happened over there. But the fact that this was allowed to get to this level of a disaster that is still unresolved is a pretty shocking failure of government. Now, there's been a fight here in this state, in Virginia, about controversial statues and monuments. You've probably heard about this. And people have gone back and forth, and I sort of see various arguments. I perhaps unsurprisingly, take something of a middle ground approach. But you've seen government efforts in Virginia, you know, undertaken at the state, county, local level to get rid of statues or to melt them down or to move them elsewhere. And we had, you know, big fights over teaching kids about you know, racial stuff and critical race theory in Virginia schools, and that's been linked to the the website of the state, and we've talked about that here as well. Here's the government in Virginia, currently dominated by Democrats, that's going to change very soon, that seems to be focused on all sorts of things, cultural signaling, culture war battles. I know they always blame conservatives for that, even if it's conservatives pushing back on something that they're doing. And then when snow comes out of the sky for a couple hours and, you know, piles up for seven or eight inches, that government is completely apparently unprepared to do the basic core functions of what a government is supposed to do. And I think if you were a voter or a taxpayer, you would be well within your rights to be really, really pissed off. Like, what are they doing in Virginia? What is the bureaucracy that we pay for actually achieving? I have friends in D.C. We heard it from Rich Edson. D.C.'s snowplow situation has been an absolute disaster. Still, to this day, like it's throughout the whole thing, there's snow all over the place, impassable roads. What is Mayor Bowser doing? Is she coming up with her latest micromanagement scheme about whether or not you have to wear a mask at the gym and then breaking it herself? She made a big show of painting Black Lives Matter political slogan on the streets of Washington, D.C. And now you can't see that because it's under snow and ice because they're not plowing. What is the point of government? Is it preening and politics and ideology? Or is it actually doing basic core functions? 
That's a question that I think a lot of Democrats in charge need to answer these days. It's the Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com, or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program needs, including the free podcast. And we are joined now by U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida. He is the chairman this cycle of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and it is now officially election year. It's go time, Senator. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year to you. I wish, Guy, Happy New Year. I wish the election was today. We would stop, (laughs) we would get a majority back, and we'd stop all the left-wing, crazy, radical ideas of Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, and the Democrats. I think you're right. I think if the election were held, let's say, you know, today, a week from today, I think Republicans would sweep the House and the Senate. But as you know, it's not quite that simple. There are still candidates that need to be chosen. There are races that are going to heat up. There's going to be a lot of money and there's a lot of time and a lot of sort of, you know, real estate politically between now and November. So things can change. Things could get worse for the Democrats, frankly, or they could improve marginally. Who knows what it'll look like in November? But as you look back on your career as governor and senator, you can get a sense for how a cycle might be shaping up. And sometimes those cycles can have trends that are bucked. I would think about you and Governor DeSantis winning your races in Florida in 2018, where it was kind of rough for Republicans elsewhere in the country. But Based on what you're seeing out there right now at the start of 2022, what is your read on the political environment and what are your thoughts about the Republicans' chances to win back that Senate majority? I think we'll both win the House. I think Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Tom Emmer are doing a great job over on the House side. I think we're going to take back the Senate. And and here's why. Number one, it's going to be a great environment. The, The public is 
fed up with Biden and the Democrats. They don't want the police defunded. They don't want critical race theory. They're fed up with the inflation. They don't, they don't want an open border. Uh, they don't like what, how we left Afghanistan. So that's not none of that's going to change. That's number one. Number two, we have great candidates and we're getting more candidates around the country. Um, and number three is Chuck Schumer historically always makes sure that he doesn't have primaries where he doesn't want primaries. They got primaries in Wisconsin. They've got primaries in Ohio on the Democrat side. They got primaries in, in Pennsylvania. Those are all states that we have every reason to believe we're going to have a great candidate and they're going to have a Bernie Sanders candidate on their side, which is going to help us win. On top of that, we're raising money. We've been outraising the Democrat Senate committee all year long. Um, people are showing up. Over half our money is raised now through email and text because people want a majority Republican Senate. They want a majority Republican House, and they're looking forward to to getting a Republican president in 24. But they know the key right now is to get the majority back in the House and Senate in 2022. You mentioned some of those divisive primaries on the Democratic side. There will be some on the Republican side as well, right? So it's a double-edged sword for sure. I want to, though, focus on something that you just said, because the Democrats might, in some cases, go sort of crazy and nominate someone way out there on the left. I know, for example, in Nevada, they've got an incumbent that they're defending there in the Senate race, but that state party in Nevada has just been taken over by the Bernie bros. It's the socialists running that state party now, and I think that Republicans really have a good shot of being very competitive in that race. There are other states, you mentioned Pennsylvania, where even if the most extreme sort of squad Bernie-style socialist doesn't win, those nominees are going to have to pander on some level to those people. And we saw, for example, just in the last few days, Connor Lamb, who's currently a member of Congress of the House from Pennsylvania, who just recently marched the plank with Pelosi on this insane Build Back Better bill and raising taxes on the middle class and taxpayer-funded abortion and trillions of dollars to the deficits. That's what moderate Connor Lamb did. He is now picking up that sort of progressive football and running with it. He says he wants to blow up the filibuster if he gets to the U.S. Senate and making that a centerpiece of his campaign to basically end the institution of the Senate should he win. That's exactly what Chuck Schumer's talking about killing the filibuster, which is a pretty radical thing that some of the actual moderates are very uncomfortable with. That's the moderate senator in that race uh, who wants to be U.S. Senator, Connor Lamb, being dragged already to the left. What's your reaction to that? And what do you make of Chuck Schumer trying to kill the filibuster in order to justify ramming through on a party line vote a federal takeover of our elections? Well, first off, it's, what's going to happen in Pennsylvania on the Democrat side is exactly what you just said. The, the, whoever comes out of that primary is going to be a Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, big, 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 big government uh, Democrat. That's exactly what's going to come out on the Democrat side. Uh, it's, and, and think about it. Even Connor Lamb almost votes 100 percent of the time with Nancy Pelosi. So so the, um, you know, Fetterman, you know, the other uh, leader in the race right now on the Democrat side is a Bernie Sanders person. But they're, they're all going to be to the left. Now, Chuck Schumer on the filibuster, it's about power. It's about one thing. Chuck Schumer wants to make sure that Democrats always win elections. So he's going to do everything he can to change the filibuster to pass the most far-left bills he can. 
I mean, he is he is scared to death of AOC, and so he has gone as far to the left as you can go. And I, I mean, Bernie Sanders runs the Democrat side of the Senate now. I mean, that's they're all in for the most radical left wing stuff on the Senate side. I mean, these are the same these are the same Democrats that four years ago signed a letter saying, oh, we can't get rid of the filibuster. Now, it's the same one saying yes. we have to get rid, of, get rid of the filibuster to save democracy. So they're just complete. The Democrats up here in the Senate are complete hypocrites. And I'm going to do everything I can as chair of the National Republican Central Committee to make sure they don't come back here and keep doing these horrible things. I think it's a really important point to highlight what happened there in 2017 that you just mentioned. Trump won. The Republicans had both houses of Congress. Trump wanted Republicans to get rid of the filibuster. And all of these Senate Democrats, I think almost every one of them, signed a letter with a bunch of Republicans. Uh, The majority, certainly, of the Senate Democrats signed a letter with a bunch of Republicans saying, we are going to preserve the filibuster. And that was framed as a defending of the democracy at the time. Now they want to kill the filibuster to defend democracy when the shoe's on the other foot. I think it's very transparent and cynical what they're trying to do. They don't have the votes to do it, but that's the key here, Senator. They might. They don't have it now, but if they're able to win some of these races around the country, they're making it very clear. If Chuck Schumer builds his majority beyond the bare, you know, threadbare 50-50, it's barely a majority now, if they get some breathing room in the U.S. Senate, the break of Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, they can blow right through that. And they'll have enough members to do this truly crazy stuff, which would be really damaging for the country. And what is standing in between the United States and that type of outcome that the Democrats are clearly telegraphing, this is what we want to do. Again, so-called moderate Connor Lamb is campaigning on ending the filibuster to pass all this crazy stuff. If they do that, the only thing standing in their way is a Republican Senate majority and putting you guys back in the majority and make sure that they have absolutely no chance of doing that, where they would not control the floor, their majority would be gone. That's, in my mind, why the 22 elections are absolutely crucial, because they're telling us what they want to do. They've already done a lot of damage. They want to do more damage, and this is a chance for voters to say no. Well, Guy, the way that, way that Schumer and the Democrats think about this is that that the only democracy that's a real democracy is a democracy where only Democrats win. They don't. They don't. They just want to win. They don't. They don't care how they win. Uh, they want to tell you how to run your life because they believe they're smarter than you. They don't believe in individual freedoms anymore. They don't believe in the Bill of Rights. I mean, they, they're finally getting rid of your Second Amendment rights, your First Amendment rights. They they don't believe in any of these things. They believe they have all the answers, and you should just do whatever they say. Do we know, just to go through a couple of the races, do we know if Senator Ron Johnson is going to run for re-election in Wisconsin, or could that be an open primary if he decides not to seek re-election? I, I talked to, talk to Ron um, a lot. He's a good friend. He's a hard worker. I'm, I believe he's going to run. Uh, he's doing everything uh, to suggest he's going to run. And the nice thing is in Wisconsin, the Democrats have a big-time primary. And so they're going to end up with a far-left candidate, or every, every candidate there is going to be, end up being a far-left candidate by the time they get done. So I think Ron's going to run, and uh, he's going to win. In Georgia... A painful subject, given what happened in January, right around this time last year. Two seats 
went to the Democrats because a lot of Republicans stayed home. I mean, thousands of Republican voters stayed home for various reasons. They were told it was rigged. It didn't. So the Democrats, they all held together. They turned out in huge numbers, and they put two Democrats in. Now, one of those Democrats, Raphael Warnock, is up already this cycle. Are you concerned that we could see a similar divisive movie play out where, you know, the president, the former president's at war with the incumbent governor and there's a nasty primary on the governor's side and Republicans are angry at each other there. I mean, it seems like in Georgia, Republicans are their own worst enemy. How do you overcome that? Well, first off, it's a Republican state. Um, And if you just look at a generic ballot, Republicans are in the lead. You're right. We have to get our vote out. We just released a poll showing that Herschel Walker is beating Raphael Warnick right now um, in that state. And and Raphael Warnick has spent a lot more money uh, than Herschel Walker has so far. So that that would give you some uh, make you feel better. Uh, You know, we're going to have now a uh, a primary in the Senate race uh, besides Kim. Um, The you know, we have uh, 70 or um, David Perdue in the race now for governor. I think what's going to happen there is is voters in in Georgia are going to say, we want a Repu- We do not want Stacey Abrams. We want a Republican governor, and we want a Republican senator. And so, there. I think they're going to turn out. If you look at, I, there's nothing to suggest that we're not going to have great turnout. When you, when guy, when you look at the number of people contributing on the small dollar across the country, including in Georgia, it shows you the passion that independents and Republicans have to get Republicans elected. Well, look um, at Virginia. Look at New Jersey. Look at money that we're raising online through email and text and see small donors. Yeah, and and in terms of elections, I mentioned Virginia, New Jersey, the the huge swings toward the GOP in in those two states. And Virginia and New Jersey are a lot less hospitable to Republicans statewide than some of these major states that are on the board right now, one of which I would say is New Hampshire. We had Governor Sununu on just the other day. He said he's totally at peace with his decision not to run And he said part of the reason why he chose not to run, there was a bunch of different reasons. I know you guys would have loved to have gotten him. But he said, I want to be governor. I want to be in New Hampshire. Plus, he said, Maggie Hassan, the Democrat incumbent, is so weak and so unpopular, he thinks that there's any number of Republicans who could run a credible campaign and beat her. Are you still confident that that is a prime pickup opportunity for the Republican Party? Absolutely. First off, Chris is a, Chris is a, is a very successful governor. He would have been a very successful uh, senator. He would have won his race, won the race. But one, we have wonderful people that I think are going to get into the race. Uh, that one of them will win the primary and will win. We already have one person in the race, uh, Don Boldeck. Uh But on top of that, Maggie Hassan is way underwater on her fave unfave. She's having to spend money now on television to try to just try to get her favorables up. Because people don't like what she's done. She she has voted 100% with Chuck Schumer. That's not where New Hampshire is. I mean, yep. I mean look, look, Chris Sununu gets reelected. He's not he's not even close to Chuck Schumer. And so that's where Maggie Hassam is. So we're going to win there. We are, you know, it looks like we'll have, you know, maybe three people in the race. Uh, we're going to have a primary, but it's going to be a primary where we're going to end up with a great candidate afterwards. My job as the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee uh, is to make sure that we define what the Democrats are. They're the ones that are causing inflation. They're the ones that don't want you, you to be involved in your kids' education. They're the ones that want to defund the police. They're the ones that are part of the debacle in that Afghanistan. And so anybody who wants to help you, just text WIN at 55404, and we will make sure your money is spent well to make sure everybody knows who Maggie Hassan is.
And you got a similar kind of Schumer clone in Arizona and Mark Kelly, uh, Cortez Masto out in Nevada. There really are some some juicy opportunities around the map. I want to ask you this briefly, since, of course, you're a U.S. senator from Florida. You were governor of that state for two terms. Uh, did you get a kick at all out of uh, AOC deciding to vacation down in Florida with all the COVID spike in, in her district in New York? She was down there seeming to have a pretty good time in the free state of Florida. So here's what here's here's what uh, New Yorkers do. They come down. They say, "Oh, we're just going to go on vacation. We hear it's really nice down there." They say, "This is nice." Then they say, "Well, maybe we should buy a condo." So then they buy a condo. Then they say, "Well, I don't want to spend a month here. I'll spend oh, if I spend seven months, I don't have to pay those stupid taxes up in New York and deal with you know De Blasio and Cuomo and people like that." So eventually, they all want to move to Florida because they have freedom and opportunity. Well, I think if AOC were to move to Florida, she'd have to definitely look for a new job. Uh, and she would be voting for uh, very different things, I would imagine, than what has made Florida into the magnet that it is. And that's part of the frustration sometimes. But it seems like there's a lot of Republicans and independents moving to Florida, which has uh, been a boon to the GOP in your state. Last question, Senator. This week, obviously, in a couple of days, we've got the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the uh, Capitol riots on January 6th. I just wonder, as you look back, what was the takeaway? What was the lesson from that day a year later in your mind? Democracy prevailed. It was disgusting that people thought that they could walk into this, break into this Capitol. Right? They need to be prosecuted, which they are. I'm disgusted that people did that. But guess what? We went through the constitutional process. Right? And the right and the and we followed through and we elected a new president. Rick Scott, U.S. Senator from Florida. He is the chairman of the NRSC, a big time election year just getting underway. I'm sure we will visit with you again, Senator, looking at these races as they shape up. Some interesting primaries on both sides with that date circled in November. And it's going to be here before we know it. Senator, really appreciate it. Talk soon. Bye, guy. Have a great day. Rick Scott on The Guy Benson Show. We will return right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Back on the Guy Benson Show, just revisiting a topic that we opened with today. We told you that Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, was one of the people stuck on I-95. He was just driving his two-hour commute up to D.C., from where he lives in Virginia, he finally has arrived at the Capitol. It took him 26 and a half hours. 26 and a half hours. I wonder if he might have a slightly colorful phone call with the current governor, Ralph Northam. Hopefully not, you know, that color. Northam apparently enjoys from time to time. So there's an update there. The nightmare for Senator Kane is over 26 and a half hours hours. Wow. Meanwhile, we just spoke to Senator Scott from Florida talking about the Senate side of things. He mentioned that he thinks Republicans will win the House. 
that seems to be kind of a, the conventional wisdom, almost a given. Nothing is over till it's over. You actually have to get out there and do it. But yes, Republicans heavily favored, I would say, to win the House. Another example, another piece and strand of evidence, the Democrats are heading for the exits. Bobby Rush, who's been in 15 terms in his seat in Chicago, Democrat, Bobby Rush announcing he is going to retire. He is now the 24th Democrat who will not be seeking re-election in the House in 2022. That's some writing on the wall. In addition to the unpopularity of President Biden, which we will talk about in some detail coming up in the next hour. When we get back, though, General Jack Keane on military matters. That's straight ahead. It's The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is available there or wherever you get your podcasts. If that is your preference, GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. On my personal site, it's at Guy P. Benson for both Twitter and Instagram. So two options, at GuyBensonShow or at Guy P. Benson, or better yet, both. As we venture into our middle hour of three today of Fox News Alert, a record close for the Dow. Ending up 214 points and finishing at 36,799. With that, we'll bring in General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, it's great to have you back here. Happy New Year to you. Oh, yeah. It's great to be back, Guy, and Happy New Year to you and your audience. Thank you. Well, it could be a very interesting and perhaps concerning new year. I want to start in Ukraine. What is your read on this? Because, you know, I've read some folks saying it's inevitable. Putin has decided he wants to invade. He's going to invade. He's made the calculation. It'll be good for Russian interests and his own political domestic audience or whatever. He's going to do it. There are other people who think... He's not necessarily bluffing, but he could be talked out of it if he really feels like uh, the consequences would be severe from the West or if he can get some concessions because there's all these negotiations that are now scheduled to start happening. Based on what you are seeing on the military side, the buildup, etc., what is the implication of that? And to the best extent that you can, what are the chances that there's going to be a war here? Well, uh, first of all... I do think um, that Putin, he's very calculating. He does a significant amount of planning and preparation. He's not reckless, as some would suggest he is. He's a bit of a strategist. And, and clearly, I mean, his strategic goals are certainly is to bring back into the Russian Federation as much of the former Soviet Union states as he possibly can, certainly the non-aligned Soviet Union states, in other words, non-aligned with NATO, but also have influence over those former Soviet Union states that now are part of NATO, and and to weaken NATO and eventually uh, the, the forces dissolution. Uh, and he would like to do all of that 
without ever having to fire a shot. Uh, so much of what he's about now, what 110,000 soldiers, or generally speaking, that number, in the vicinity of Ukraine, and he does have the logistics infrastructure, the command and control, the necessary artillery that he did not have in the spring. He does have that there now uh, if he's uh, prepared to do some kind of an of invasion, whether limited uh, or all out. And I'll come back to that. But that's not his, his first play. His first play is because he's an opportunist, and, and he sees an opportunity here. You know, it, it begs the question, if he was there in the spring with seventy and 90,000 troops, why did he come back in the fall? Mm-hmm. Well, I think he's come back in the fall for a couple of reasons. One, he, he perceives that the opportunity is presenting itself because the political and social division that we see in Europe and in the United States, in his mind, is an opportunity because he sees White House leadership and European leadership, particularly France and Germany, and he sees leaders that would more than likely make, be willing to make concessions as opposed to stand up to him. And I think the Afghanistan fiasco is something that he really has absorbed. He, he looked at that, and I think he's come to the conclusion. I mean, not only was that humiliating, uh, you know, certainly for the United States and a strategic flaw on the part of the United States, but in his mind, it brings in the question, the judgment of the president of the United States. On the seriousness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, so this first play is a very serious play on his part uh, to get concessions. And I've read that document that he sent uh, to President Biden and, and, and to NATO, the so-called treaty document that he prepared. And it, it, guy is breathtaking. I mean, he not only is he saying no former expansion of NATO to include Ukraine, no uh, no more military assistance to Ukraine, but he he says after 1997, all of the countries that joined NATO, um, you are not going to be permitted to put any NATO troops into those countries. There's 14 of them, 10 of them were a part of the former Soviet Union or Warsaw Pact, and four of them were part of the uh, Yugoslavia Pact, a block. I mean, that's a ludicrous demand. No NATO troops in there, no weapons. So now that is a completely unrealistic claim. But nonetheless, he's making that claim because he wants to use it as leverage to get something here. And then he has two other pieces. The other piece he is saying is, is that the United States and NATO forces cannot move their air power or their sea power anywhere near uh, in range where their weapons could reach Russia. And that's a complete violation of all international norms, as you know, where you can get close to 12 miles. And here he's talking about we wouldn't even be able to enter the Black Sea because <laughs> our cruise missiles could reach Russia. wouldn't be able to enter the Baltic Sea either for the same reason. Absolutely an absurdity. And the last thing he, he put in writing was that he doesn't want any intermediate nuclear weapons uh, being held by NATO. Now, that's pretty rich because it's his, his holding of intermediate nuclear weapons that forced the Trump administration to finally say, we're pulling out of the INF Treaty uh, of 1987, uh, which was structured by uh, Reagan and Gorbachev, 
and eliminated those weapons, but Russia brought them back, and therefore we got out. So he, he's given that document. I believe he's going to continue to negotiate towards those ends, uh, regardless, hoping to get some, some concessions. Here's the concern I have. I mean, on the surface of that, it's preposterous. Uh, but I'm not convinced about the resolve and determination of President Biden, nor of the Germans and the French dealing yeah. with this. And he's, he's well aware of this uh, guy. So he thinks there's something here for him. And he's an opportunist, and he'll pursue it. He's going to meet here uh, this, uh, this coming week um, prior to the U.S. Russian meeting and the and the Russian NATO meetings, uh, January 10th, etc. He's going to meet with the Germans, the French, and the Ukrainians in something called the the Normandy uh, Pact, which was established in 2014 when they met after the invasion of of uh, uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine the first time. Right, which he got I, away he's, with. He's doing he's doing that to weaken the Germans and the French position so he can take advantage of them uh, vis-a-vis Biden. So, so General, let me just ask you, because we only, we only have a couple minutes left, so two quick questions, if I could, in the remaining time. Number one, let's say he doesn't get what he wants, and uh, he's not able to get you know concessions, less insane concessions, but certain concessions out of the West, they won't give it to him. If he decides, okay, fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invade, he decides it's in his interest to invade, how strong is the Ukrainian military? How bloody and ugly could that war be? Well, it depends on what he does. He has options. I think the all-out invasion to take control of uh, Ukraine is probably the least likely option for him because that presents all sorts of problems for him in terms of a long-term guerrilla operation against uh, the Russian Federation, which would be a consistent uh, drop of casualties every month, every year. The Ukrainians will fight him tooth and nail for generations to come, as long as it takes, to be quite frank about it. Um, And he's got uh, Afghanistan in his rearview mirror uh, as well uh, for their invasion there that did not succeed in 1980. More likely, a limited uh, incursion into the eastern part of Ukraine, where the separatists already ought to solidify that and and also put some troops into Belarus to undermine Poland and, and the Baltics. I think that would be the likely course of action if he doesn't get any concessions that satisfy him. And would the Ukrainian military still fight him there? I mean, there would be shots fired, right? I mean, it's not like this would just be like a shrug. No, no. The the Ukrainians are very brave. And when they initially were fighting the separatists and the Russians, uh, they were doing it with the the civilian population in addition to the military. I mean, that... But they they will get what the Russians will be able to overpower the Ukrainians and 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 secure the provinces in the east that they they want to be able to do. Uh, it'll be bloody uh, for sure, but they'll be able to do it. In and there will be some consequences, you know, whether the consequences are as significant as the West is warning. I mean, that's sort of the gamble here that Putin's trying to figure out. Maybe when we have you back next time, General, I can ask you about what we should be doing in the United States, what the Biden administration should be doing in advance of this, because, you know, this could happen in a matter of weeks or months, potentially. I know there are talks scheduled before then. General Jack Keane will have to have you back to discuss that very soon. It's a distressing situation, but an important one for us to watch, and we will. Jack Keane on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. 
I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Glad to have you along. Thanks for listening. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. So our installment yesterday was more silly. It was about a school banning the song Jingle Bells because of where it might have been first performed. Just very dumb and oversensitive and ridiculous. This one is much more insidious. And it's a callback to a similar type of story that we've covered here a few different times. I think of the state of Vermont and their vaccine distribution plan that they rolled out. I think of the city of Chicago and a vaccine location at the United Center, the big basketball and hockey arena, where they were doing equity-guided vaccine distribution and facilitation, where they were using identity, skin color, as a decisive factor. And they were not even filling all of their appointment slots because they were so hell-bent on focusing on identity and making sure people of certain skin colors were in and others were not. Because fairness or whatever, that's justice in their minds. This is similar, what we're seeing now out of New York. Foxnews.com with the story. New York says it will prioritize non-white people in distributing low supply of COVID-19 treatments. The Empire State considers being a minority a health risk factor due to what they call long-standing systemic and societal inequities, social inequities. So there's that word again, equity, inequity, this buzzword on the woke left. And I guess there's not a lot of a certain type of COVID-19 treatments available. These monoclonal antibodies, antiviral pills, it's a scarce resource. So they have a plan that they put out publicly about how they're going to provide those limited resources to various people who might need them. And they say that there will be risk factors involved. And if you have risk factors, then you are prioritized. And one such risk factor, reports foxnews.com, is being a race or ethnicity that is not white due to long-standing systemic social inequities. So if you are someone who has an actual physical condition, that would be a risk factor, right? Let's say a heart condition or something like that, a comorbidity, a vulnerability, which is, again, I would say an ailment or a condition. We know, for example, obesity is a high risk factor when it comes to bad outcomes from COVID. If you have some of these risk factors, you're prioritized. Okay, fair enough. That makes sense. We can ask questions about why we don't have more of these treatments available. That actually tees up my monologue that I'm getting ready to do in the next segment about some of these big frustrating, embarrassing failures this deep into the pandemic. This would be another one, that there's not a lot of this stuff to go around. We should have tons of this stuff available. There should have been an Operation Warp Speed for this and these treatments. But because of where we are, because of what's happened, this is the case. There aren't plenty to go around. So they have to do kind of some triage and prioritize certain people. They're saying, okay, risk factors. But one of those listed risk factors is being non-white. 
like just being a person of color unto itself, they say, is a risk factor due to longstanding, as I've now read a few times, systemic and social inequities. Now, I understand that some of that stuff is real and exists, and you have people with a higher propensity or disproportionately high chance of having risk factors because perhaps of some of the injustices or inequalities of the past. And I would say if you have those risk factors and it happens to be a higher proportion of, let's say, black people or Hispanic people, that's one thing. But to say you are a risk factor, you have an inherent risk factor because of your race, regardless of your actual personal physical condition, and saying if you're a white person, you need to have those conditions to meet this definition of risk factor, I think that is literally textbook racism. That is the definition of racializing medical decisions. And the people making these calls, these woke progressives, truly believe that they're genuinely the anti-racists, and they believe that equality is not good enough, equity is the new mantra, and equity requires racialized decision-making and discrimination, just in another direction. So they want to fix racism or systemic racism that they see everywhere, it's ubiquitous, they want to fix it with another kind of racism. That is the essence of woke overreach. It is racism. It is racism. And it is the policy in New York State. And we're seeing elements of this cropping up elsewhere. It's dangerous. It's not just ill-conceived. It's not just roll-your-eyes ridiculous. It's not just people going a little too far and being a little too politically correct. This is far worse. And there's been a lot of pushback. There's been a lot of anger that has boiled over as a result of this, including from a lot of non-white people, because they don't see their skin color as a pre-existing condition or a risk factor unto itself no matter what the New York State bureaucracy tries to tell them. A particularly dark chapter of Woke Tales here on The Guy Benson Show. And as I said, I have some more thoughts, particularly about the Biden administration and this president, on shortcomings and failures. I will get that off my chest as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast, major interviews, etc. I was on special report last night with Brett Baer and company. Now, we were talking about the lead story, COVID and Omicron and testing lines and school closures that whole basket of issues. And I once again expressed my astonishment and exasperation at the reality, the incredible reality 
that in 2022, we still have a testing problem for COVID. It's not like the disease has changed so much that the tests don't work anymore. They work fine. We just don't have enough of them. So there are shades of spring 2020, back when tests were so hard to find that it took being the brother of the governor of New York to get one, for example. There's no excuse for that being the case anymore. Now, look, I've said this. I don't think we should just be testing everyone willy-nilly. I'm not sure that we should just be testing random people who have no symptoms at schools or colleges or whatever. To a certain extent, that's fishing for positive cases, which fuels the narrative about the huge spike in cases and everyone freaks out. I think we should have enough tests to test symptomatic people, and if there are going to be requirements to test negative, to go to work or to go to school, that should be at least able, those requirements should be able to be satisfied. We should have a glut of tests at this point, and yet we do not, from a president who promised on the campaign trail to crush the virus, to shut down the virus. The whole reason Joe Biden is president is a lot of people could not stand Donald Trump anymore. Many people liked his policies. They loved how the economy was going before the pandemic. They didn't love some of the other stuff, the way he talked about the pandemic. I think his biggest win on the pandemic, for sure, was Operation Warp Speed. But Biden came in and said, look, I'm not Trump. I'm going to sit in my basement. I'm not going to do a lot of campaigning. You know that guy. I'm a different guy. I'm sort of unthreatening. I've been around forever. We're going to crush the virus and get back to normal and come together. And the American people said, okay, let's do that. And on the number one policy issue, if you can even call it that, COVID, that Biden campaigned on repeatedly to the extent that he campaigned, Ending the virus, which I think he thought the trajectory of events would just get him there anyway. This is a point Britt Hume was making on the special report panel last night. Remember, he was setting vaccine targets that were already met by the time he took office. That's how ambitious it was. He just thought, okay, we've got the vaccines. This thing's going to clear up. The economy's going to rebound pretty quickly. I'll get the credit, and I don't really have to do much. That was the plan. And in some ways, it wasn't a bad plan. Obviously, it got him elected. There were a lot of us who thought that the vaccines would be the end of this. In some ways, they kind of should be, but here we are. And there are other areas, and I made this point a few weeks ago before the holiday break. There are some points where I do not blame Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any president. Some stuff, some developments, some eventualities are beyond any of our control. It's very humbling, it's scary, it's frustrating, but that's the truth. There are, however, some things that are within the power of the government. I think it's an arguable case, probably a pretty strongly arguable case, that because the Trump administration was caught flat-footed by a -a once-in-a-generation pandemic, some of their mistakes, some of their failures, are more forgivable than the ones we're seeing from Biden now. Because Biden had a lot of lead time. We learned a lot about the pandemic over the course of 2020. He had a whole year, in some ways, to prepare for what could be a winter surge and didn't. That's worse, especially when the raison d'etre for people to vote for you is you're going to overcome the virus and get us all back 
to normal. Instead, we have these raging cases. We have this huge shortage in testing. We have other supply chain issues and shortages and stores and grocery aisles and that sort of thing. And then, of course, there's inflation. Setting aside Afghanistan, setting aside the southern border, it doesn't feel normal, does it? Because it's not. Because it's not. So I was making this point specifically on the testing. Because they should have widespread antibodies available. Instead, they've gone the opposite direction. In fact, what they've done, to quickly digress a little bit here, they've taken control over the monoclonal antibody treatments. The feds have. And part of the CDC failure that we talked about yesterday, that I wrote about also yesterday at townhall.com, where they wrongly estimated the dominance of Omicron and then stopped shipping out the antibodies because they don't really work against Omicron, but they do against Delta, but they got it wrong on how prevalent Omicron versus Delta was. That's another example of this incompetence. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida was on Hannity last night talking about how the Biden administration took a succeeding treatment policy in Florida that DeSantis was criticized for, of course, because he's criticized for everything, First, it was, you know, witchcraft. It didn't really work. Junk science. Then it was, oh, he's doing this because he's got a financial stake in this for one of his donors or something. A total crackpot conspiracy theory on that front that got debunked. And then the problem was it was working too well, and Florida was hoarding something. So then the feds took it over, and they're screwing it up. Surprise, surprise. Here was DeSantis last night explaining what's going on right now on that front. Cut one. Well, I think with the with the monoclonals, uh, that is absolutely leading uh, to people dying because we saw when we put in our sites this summer in Florida to deal with the Delta wave, we kept tens of thousands of people out of the hospital. We saved thousands of lives by providing that treatment. So that should have been replicated in all these other states. But instead, what Biden and his cronies have done, they've seized control of all the monoclonal antibodies. And in cut two, he goes on. When we were in the pinch, I bought some myself. None of the governors now are able to do that because the feds have seized control. So we're in a situation where we've now asked for 40,000 more every week because I have people that I could help and they are holding on to it and they're not distributing it the way we need it to be distributed. Can you feel the competence? Can you feel the shutting down of the virus? How's that going at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Now, I've teased this a few times over the course of this segment already, the testing failure, the testing failure, the testing failure. To me, it is one of the most glaring failures in our public policy on COVID of the entire pandemic, because you can attest, as a matter of fact, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, we're grateful for that. You have heard doctor after doctor after doctor for months come on the air saying we need easier testing. We need better, cheap, widely available testing. And yet here we are, where it's almost impossible to get. You have to call around to 18 CVS and Walgreens, hoping that one of them got a shipment, if you're in certain areas of the country, and hoping that other people haven't found out about it yet, so you can get there before they sell out in like you know 42 minutes. Long lines of people waiting to get tested, with now... The federal government, apparently on the brink, they are now teasing further, 
Fauci sort of hinted at this, and now we've got more indications, Reuters was reporting this, that they're going to add a testing recommendation at the end of the five-day isolation guidance that they've given. At first they said, you don't have to get a test after the five days. Then they got blowback, Fauci admitted. They got blowback, so they're changing. So if you want to get back to life after your isolation, that's fine, but now they're going to recommend a test. The test recommendation will become a requirement a lot of places, because the CDC said it. And you can't get a test easily. We have to wait in line forever. We have to wait for results forever. This is so disruptive and so unnecessary. President Biden, right before Christmas, gave an interview, finally, gave one of these sit-down interviews that he's been dodging to ABC's David Muir. And one of the things that he said was this in Cut 15. And for some reason, he keeps calling tests pills. He's not talking about pills. That's a separate issue. But he kept calling rapid tests pills. He corrects himself once. But listen to the way that Biden sort of describes this. This was just before Christmas again. And then I want to bring you an update. Cut 15. I've ordered half a billion of the pills. 500 million pills. I mean, excuse me, 500 million test kits that are going to be available to be sent to every home in America if anybody wants them. But um, the answer is, yeah, I wish I had thought about ordering a half a billion pills two months ago before COVID hit here. I wish I had thought about ordering half a billion pills two months ago. Well, again, they're not pills. They're tests. They had pills on the brain there, I guess, for the president. Here's the thing. He says, I wish I had thought about that a few months ago. He did. It was presented to him in the White House explicitly. And we could just take a step back and say, how many doctors have publicly been calling for widely available, cheap, dirt cheap or free tests for like a year? It's not like, oh, gee whiz, we just suddenly realized at Christmas that it would be useful to have tests because there's a winter seasonal surge coming. We've been talking about seasonality in this virus forever. That's the other thing. We've known about seasonality, winter waves, especially up north. They say, oh, Kamala Harris, we didn't know that this Omicron uh, variant was coming. Then the CDC director said, like, the next day, oh, no, we did anticipate a new variant. It's just all over the map. But with Biden now sort of trying to quasi do this mea culpa, golly gee, if we only known, I wish I had thought to do this, 500 million pills, i.e. tests, a few months ago. Perhaps he doesn't recall what was reported in Vanity Fair. This was over the holidays. Headline, the Biden administration rejected an October proposal for free rapid tests for the holidays. With Omicron cases spreading like wildfire, the White House has finally taken steps to make free antigen tests available to all. I will just add briefly, it's taking quite a while to do that because you can't just snap your fingers. There's a ramp up of production required. This is going to take a while. But this fall, reported Vanity Fair, again, this was at the holidays, the White House dismissed a bold plan to ramp up rapid testing ahead of the holidays. Frustrated experts explain how confusion, distrust, and a single-minded fixation on vaccinating Americans left testing on the back burner for so long. 
And here's one more paragraph from this long Vanity Fair story talking about this incident where these people came in, these experts gave a proposal to the White House. They said, hey, we need to get a lot of tests out there. Let's like get them directly to people. Let's especially do it before the holidays. And it was shut down. We recalled yesterday that when this was a question asked of Jen Psaki a few weeks ago, she sneered at it. What, are we going to just mail something to everyone? LOL. I think that was Mara Eliason who asked the question. And a lot of doctors said, actually, no, not LOL. That's exactly what we should do. It's exactly what was proposed to the White House, and the White House said no. Here's Vanity Fair. The plan, in effect, was a blueprint for how to avoid what is happening at this very moment. Endless lines of desperate Americans clamoring for tests in order to safeguard holiday gatherings, just as COVID-19 is exploding again. Yesterday, so this is back around Christmas, President Biden told ABC News, I wish I had thought of ordering 500 million at-home tests two months ago, but the proposal shared at the meeting in October, two months prior, disclosed here for the first time, included a bold plan for impact and a provision for every American household to receive free rapid tests for the holidays slash New Year, end quote. So Biden is giving interviews saying, I wish I had thought of doing this, and now it's going to take a while, but we're slowly, finally going to catch up with the obvious thing that should have been done all along, and pretending that it never occurred to him to actually do something that was specifically proposed and turned down. Now, part of me was trying to figure out, what are they talking about with this single-minded fixation on vaccination? That's not mutually exclusive from also having tests out there. I had seen some of the reporting on this and people saying, oh, the Biden people thought that this could interfere with their vaccination push. You all know that I'm a huge advocate for the vaccines. Huge. And if you look at the data, the vaccines work unbelievably well at keeping people out of the hospital and out of the morgue. Okay? The vaccines work very well. They're highly effective against severe illness from COVID. I endorse them completely, as you all know. The Biden people, though, have been trying to figure out how to force people and coerce people who might be holding out into getting them. And I was scratching my head. Why would they say no? Why would they decline a plan to get testing available ahead of a winter or holiday surge? What effect would that have on also simultaneously on another trying to get people vaccinated It's because the mandates that they were putting in place, this is what I finally realized. It was, you must get vaccinated in order to work. If it's like a federal job or a federal contractor, military, or even private sector, with that controversial move. Or if you don't want to get vaccinated, you can just get tested a bunch. And I think they probably at some point thought, oh gosh, there are a lot of people who are going to be willing to just get tested a bunch. Let's make that harder. Let's make that more painful. Let's make that even more inconvenient for them. We don't want to have an overwhelming supply of that, which would make that option easier. Let's make it harder and then hopefully shove some people over into the vaccine category. The problem is a lot of people with the vaccines are still getting sick, not terribly sick, but sick. And you've got all these requirements for testing, demand for tests, and they don't exist because of, again, this psychological manipulation that the Biden administration was trying to accomplish, thinking that they understood better 
and they knew better than anyone else. This is the guy who said, we're going to shut down the virus, and then they have made one bad decision after another. And now they've made a bed that they're lying in, and the American people are very dissatisfied. How dissatisfied? There's a new poll out from CNBC to start off the new year. Happy New Year, Mr. President. Let's run through those numbers when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Right before the break, I promised you some new numbers. CNBC, brand new poll on President Biden as we begin this new year, an election year. His overall disapproval rating is now 56%, an all-time high in this series. His disapproval on the economy, 60%. His disapproval on COVID, which was his bread and butter, got him elected, 55% disapproval. What about efforts to help people's wallets, their finances, 66% disapproval. His handling of the price of everyday goods, i.e. inflation, 72% disapproval. This president is weak and wounded. We are 10 months out from a critical election. And as of right now, he's a big anchor on his party. And in a lot of ways, he can just thank himself. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. Stay with us. Dr. Manny Alvarez next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour on the Guy Benson Show. It's Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. It's the Happy Hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good and delicious and refreshing year-round. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, please, and always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com, you can find out where it's sold near you, or you can also order online. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. That's on demand around the clock, 24-7, 365, even weekends with bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. And as we begin our final hour of today's show, we welcome back into the fold, into the mix, Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor and senior health analyst. Doctor, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Happy New Year. How come I always get the happy hour hour? Uh, Because we like you. I mean, it's sort of like uh, an exciting time to be on the show. I mean, it's an honor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to begin with a big picture question for you, and I know it's impossible to answer fully, but I just want to get your opinion on it because I have to admit, and I referenced this earlier in the show today, once the vaccines were widely available, my thought process was, okay, this is our way out. The pandemic is going to end. There are going to be some people who don't want to get vaccinated. We're not going to completely get to zero covid But people are going to get vaccinated. They're going to be able to get back to their lives, and it will be somewhat manageable. It will kind of look like the flu. Maybe it will be seasonal, but the worst will be clearly behind us. However, here we are starting 2022 with record case numbers. I understand that's very different than hospitalizations and deaths. We've made a lot of progress on that. The vaccines are working in a lot of ways, but 
sort of the herd immunity that many people had in mind, where you just get your shots and move on, that hasn't quite worked out that way because, you know, Omicron can get people even if they're vaccinated. And there are all these requirements, doctor, as you know, around testing and people are being sent home again from work, from school, all of that. I did notice that Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, said that he thinks the Omicron wave will be over maybe in February or the end of February, based on what we saw in South Africa, based on what we're seeing in the United Kingdom. Given how very, very transmissible Omicron has been, and it's just sweeping through the population, would that be kind of like another round of now herd immunity where this might actually be the end of it, the way that we hoped and thought the vaccines might have been around this time last year? Or is that too optimistic or too unpredictable? No, I don't think so. Listen, I, th- I think what you have going here is a tale of two cities. You have a tale that tells you that that the COVID virus, whatever variant it is, is sort of modifying to be chronically endemic throughout the planet for years to come. Uh, the other tale is that you are now focusing on positivity rates and you're sort of creating a narrative that the, 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 the bottom is falling off the, the, the paperback here. And, and that's the problem, because if you look at admission rates with, with severely sick patients, yes, there's a handful of patients that, of course, are going to get chronically or very sick, uh, especially, you know, we're seeing that in children sometimes or immunocompromised patients or patients that are not immunized. But if you look at the tale of hospitalizations and deaths throughout the country, that's not a narrative. What it is a narrative is that you're testing everybody and their mother, and yes, you're going to find this uh, Omicron variant positivity rates, which are alarming, and therefore creating a narrative of what I would say is a little bit of a panic in the population, mm-hmm. which is not playing out in what in really in what the natural disease process of this variant is showing you. Well, this and is let me showing you that. I just want want to ask this because I I completely agree with everything that you're saying. And in fact, we had our first show of the new year yesterday. I opened with that good news, saying we should not panic. This is a more mild variant. People are much less likely to get terribly ill from it. The vaccines are protecting people from going to the hospital because of COVID or dying. That is all good news. And I think people understand that to a certain extent. They may not be as afraid. I think this is the distinction. They may not be as afraid of dying from COVID as they were in the spring of 2020 or, you know, around this time last year, for example, or two years ago. But the fact that so many people are getting it and it's not a pleasant experience. People still feel sick. It disrupts their lives. And it seems extremely contagious, more so than it has been in the past, I think that that might feed into the sense that even though it's not as dangerous and people are probably going to be okay and pull through almost, you know, in much higher numbers than they may have previously, it's just everywhere right now. And that's unnerving to a lot of people. And, And I guess the crux of my question is, are we going through this difficult time, albeit again with not as severe, are we going to go through this difficult time? Is this variant going to eat through the population, really just like a blowtorch with everyone getting it? And then could that finally mean that we're sort of 
done because everyone got it and most people are vaccinated? Listen, it's a very difficult, you know, you know, it's a very difficult question to uh, to answer it because what, what I think what keeps everybody in, in sort of alert, we're, we're testing everybody, even asymptomatic people. So, you know, half the lines of people getting COVID tests is because they want to just find out if they have COVID, but they don't have any symptoms. So they may have, uh, you know, they may be positive, but they're completely asymptomatic. So at the end of the day, what is it that we're achieving? And on top of that, you know, everything that every that, that, that the federal government is pushing towards and some cities uh, are pushing towards is that, OK, you're positive, you know, you're contagious, please keep away, don't go to work and all of that. I, I, you know, th- that's a social message that it, it, it's sort of creating, despite the fact that what you said is completely right, that patients feel that they're not going to die from COVID anymore. But when you keep having this narrative of this, you know, of this uh, alarming, uh, alarming message, then that's where the confusion begins. You know, uh, the mayor of New York spoke today, this morning, uh, and, and, you know, he's a Democratic mayor and a very liberal city of New York. And he said, listen to me, uh, you know, corporate people, you've got to go back to work. I can't run a city. And I can't run my economy because you want to have people working out of their offices, right? Goldman Sachs said today, hey, everybody works out of their office. Don't come to don't come to the offices in New York. You know, if you keep this narrative going, it's going to create more fear. Uh, uh, what I call the post-traumatic stress syndrome of COVID, which I think is embedded in the American mindset, because everybody thinks that, you know, I got COVID, I got COVID. It could be 100,000 other diseases. And it's always COVID. The narrative is always COVID. I mean, it's amazing to me that every other disease in America has sort of disappeared from the narrative of the language uh, that everything is COVID. If you have a knee pain, it's COVID. If you have a toe infection, it's COVID. Everything is COVID. (laughs) You know, and it's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. Yes, there is a high positivity rate among this Omicron. People are getting infected. Okay, you get a cold. You stay home for two or three days. The symptoms are mild. They disappear. That's the end of it. But if you keep testing and you keep finding, trying to find more and more and more and more and more cases, um, you know, uh, then you're creating a narrative that it's going to right. slow down the country again. And it, it, and like, it's yeah, it becomes so disruptive for so much longer. That's why I thought... The CDC coming out over the holidays and saying, okay, if you've got COVID, isolate for five days, then wear a mask for a couple more days. You don't need a test. That's the best practice. And then they got a lot of uh, angry pushback on that. They admitted that they're changing now back to requiring a negative test or recommending a negative test at the tail end of it because of the pushback that they got. That's going to, I mean, I understand why some people would feel like that's the responsible thing to do but it goes back to this point of are we testing people necessarily or unnecessarily this all feeds into i think the confusion and the frustration that so many people are feeling here's another question and i'm again this i'm throwing some tough ones at you here today and this is something that occurred to me uh just i think it was yesterday and i put out a tweet about it because Look, I'm fully vaccinated. Then I got COVID over the summer, so I have hybrid immunity. I think that that combination has really helped me because I've had a house filled with COVID people for the last two weeks, and I haven't gotten it, I don't think. Maybe I got it briefly, but it, you know, basically not affected by it because I had that hybrid immunity, right? So what I've been telling people now for a long time is once you get your shots, go back, live your life. We can't be constantly in this 
vicious cycle, this time warp almost, of all these mitigation measures that get implemented and then re- sort of released or diminished a little bit, then re-implemented. It just it gets unwieldy. It doesn't make any sense after a while. The only question that I had and the only hesitancy I had on that was the threat of long COVID. Because it's pretty clear if you get vaccinated or you have natural immunity, you're not going to die from COVID. Most people aren't going to die from COVID anyway, right? It's it's already, you know, 99 plus percent of people were surviving COVID, but your numbers were even more favorable, much, much more favorable. You're going to survive this thing if you're vaccinated. But there was this weird, almost Russian roulette game, doctor, of long COVID with symptoms that last weeks and weeks or even months for people. And that sounded very scary neurologically. It sounded horrible in terms of quality of life. It could affect your career, your family, all of that. And it was not terribly common, but not so uncommon that it could be dismissed. My question for you is, do we have any data or is there any medical evidence that Omicron is less likely to cause long COVID? Because I think that could also affect people's mentality and the way that we go about our lives. I understand that Omicron might affect or attack your lungs differently. Maybe that makes a difference when it comes to the threat of long COVID. Can you tell us anything about that? Listen, the only thing I could tell you, Guy, is that viruses have lived in this planet for centuries. And any virus of any sort, okay, can give you a chronic debilitating disease. You could apply that to the flu. Uh, you could apply that to that to the common cold. You could apply that to uh, you know any kind of respiratory virus. You could apply that to any virus. Any virus can create havoc in any human being, and it has done so for centuries. This is nothing new. There's nothing special about Omicron uh, whatsoever. The original COVID, uh, COVID variant, uh, when it came out, that it was in full force and it was new to the human population. It created a disease process that is completely different than what it is today. You know, back in the day, in early 2020, that original variant, that original COVID-19 had a very powerful uh, inflammatory response, aside the fact of the pneumonias and with the symptoms of fever and the cough and everything else. But post, uh, you know, in the second week of that uh, variant, uh, not variant of that original uh, COVID uh, virus, you had a, a terrible inflammatory response, and that's what most people die from that inflammatory response. We're not seeing that in this new variant whatsoever, and there's right. overwhelming anecdotal reports from everywhere you look, everywhere, including our own here in the United States, that this is transforming into a variant of coronavirus that gives you, uh, you know, the aches and pains and a little fever maybe and a little cough, and then after two or three days it goes away, and that's right. the end of that's, it. That's really and hopeful, and it also leads me to be hopeful on the long COVID issue as well. But I guess it's a bit early on solid data there. Last question, Dr. Manny. I want to play you. You mentioned the new mayor of New York City who was sworn in in the new year, Eric Adams. He had a message to workers and employees in New York City. He also had a message about schools. This was a message for parents and people making decisions about schools. He was on CNN. He said this in Cut 14. I'm saying to them, your children are safer in school than any other place based on the facts. Now, if you take a child out of school, 
They're not staying home. They're not staying indoors. They're in the streets probably with no mask on, no social distancing, not receiving the food, the nurturing, the care. And that's what we must look at. And so, yes, we see an increase. We see the exposure and how quickly uh, this strand is exposing us. But let's share something. Let's be clear. Strand after strand, we can't continue to stop our children from developing socially and academically and the support that they need. So we have to learn how to live with COVID and live with COVID, COVID with a safe way. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to allow the hysteria to prevent the future of my children receiving the quality education and the development that all sociologists are stating that they needed. Dr. Manny, very quickly, your reaction to that from the new mayor of New York City. Amen. Absolutely on the money. What he's saying is 100%. The transmission rate in schools is about 1%. The transmission rate at home for kids that stay at home is about 15%. People going in and out of the apartments, kids leaving and going outside, uh, you name it. Uh, There's no comparison when it comes to the transmission rates in kids in school. So what he's saying is right on the money. And I think that so far, this mayor is getting it right. Get back to work. Get back to cities open. Get the kids to kind of forget about this trauma and teach them how to be safe. If anything, what's going to happen with our children moving forward in the next 15 years, they're all going to grow up, men and women, realizing that infectious diseases is an important factor and they should be aware about hygiene. And that's a lesson they're going to have for the rest of their life. But I think the mayor's right on the money. God bless him. Yep. And keep the schools open. Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor, senior health analyst. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year. We'll talk again soon. Happy New Year, Guy. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Red Hamilton story we shared with you earlier. We mentioned Nadia's head at the medical school. She's been accepted at a number of schools. Kraken honored her during the second commercial timeout tonight. Seattle and Vancouver, both teams combined to award her a $10,000 scholarship. So she's already saved a life. Some of her education's paid for. Nadia's medical career's off to a good start as this story just keeps getting better. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Amazing story out of the National Hockey League. What happened was, at a Seattle hockey game against Vancouver, the game was in Seattle, there was the equipment manager for the Canucks. And he was on the bench, and there was a fan in the stands behind him who could see through the glass. She was concerned. She's an aspiring doctor. She was concerned about a mole on this guy's neck or whatever. She could see this mole on his body. said, that looks dangerous. So she literally typed a message to him on her phone saying, you need to check this out, and got his attention. He read it. A day or two later, he puts out a statement on the Vancouver Canucks Twitter account saying, hey, whoever you are, I don't know who you are, but you saved my life. I got it checked out. It was removed. It was cancerous, but it had not spread. Thank you. Please come and reveal yourself. You saved my life. And it was this young woman named Nadia who now has this special connection not only to this guy but to both teams. They've given her a generous scholarship check to pursue her education in the medical field, having already saved this guy's life. His name is Brian Red Hamilton. That is a very cool story. Congratulations to everyone involved. Love some hockey. Love to hear that. Very much a happy hour story on The Guy Benson Show. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. NRSC chairman and Florida Senator Rick Scott was our guest earlier today on the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. I want you to hear part of that interview if you missed it back in our first hour. Here's a portion of my discussion with Senator Rick Scott. Based on what you're seeing out there right now at the start of 2022, what is your read on the political environment and what are your thoughts about the Republicans' chances to win back that Senate majority? I think we'll both win the House. I think Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Tom Emmer are doing a great job over on the House side. I think we're going to take back the Senate. And, and here's why. Number one, it's a, we're going to be a great environment. The, the public is fed up with Biden and the Democrats. They don't want the police defunded. They don't want critical race theory. They're fed up with the inflation. They don't, they don't want an open border. Uh, they don't like what, how we left Afghanistan. So that's not, none of that's going to change. That's number one. Number two, we have great candidates, and we're getting more candidates around the country. Um, and number three is Chuck Schumer historically always makes sure that he doesn't have primaries where he doesn't want primaries. They got primaries in Wisconsin. They've got primaries in Ohio on the Democrat side. They got primaries in, in Pennsylvania. Those are all states that we have every reason to believe we're going to have a great candidate and they're going to have a Bernie Sanders candidate on their side, which is going to help us win. On top of that, we're raising money. We've been out raising the Democrat Senate committee all year long. Um, people are showing up. Over half our money is raised now through email and text because people want a majority Republican Senate. They want a majority Republican House, and they're looking forward to win- to getting a Republican president in 24. But they know the key right now is to get the majority back in the House and Senate in 2022. You mentioned some of those divisive primaries on the Democratic side. There will be some on the Republican side as well, right? So there, it's a double-edged sword for sure. I want to, though, focus on something that you just said, because the Democrats might, in some cases, go sort of crazy and nominate someone way out there on the left. I know, for example, in Nevada, they've got an incumbent that they're defending there in the Senate race, but that state party in Nevada has just been taken over by the Bernie bros. It's the socialists running that state party now, and I think that Republicans really have a good shot of being very competitive in that race. There are other states, you mentioned Pennsylvania, where even if the most extreme sort of squad Bernie-style socialist doesn't win, those nominees are going to have to pander on some level to those people. And we saw, for example, just in the last few days, Connor Lamb, who's currently a member of Congress of the House from Pennsylvania, who just recently marched the plank with Pelosi on this insane Build Back Better bill and raising taxes on the middle class and taxpayer-funded abortion and trillions of dollars to the deficits. That's what moderate Connor Lamb did. He is now picking up that sort of progressive football and running with it. He says he wants to blow up the filibuster if he gets to the U.S. Senate and making that a centerpiece of his campaign to basically end the institution of the Senate should he win. That's exactly what Chuck Schumer is talking about killing the filibuster, which is a pretty radical thing that some of the actual moderates are very uncomfortable with. That's the moderate senator in that race uh, who wants to be U.S. Senator Connor Lamb being dragged already to the left. 
That full interview with U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, online at GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free, the whole show every day, on demand. No charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, has producer Christine's condition improved? Has it perhaps deteriorated? We think she has COVID. We can't know for sure because she can't find a test. Oh, we'll get to all of it when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Sort of like a medical triage here at the program (laughs) because we have two staff members who are perfectly fine. Dan, Wyatt, they're fine. I'm fine, but I've had at least one COVID-positive person in this house every day since Christmas Eve. Adam is still positive. In fact, he's feeling a little bit lousier today than he did yesterday. Still fine overall, but sick. And then there's producer Christine, who was on our planning call earlier and had a few coughing fits And it sounds like things aren't great over at that household. Although, Megan, your daughter, has bounced back almost completely, right? That's the good news. That's the best news of all, is that Megan really, it was more of like a 24, 48-hour thing for her. And really, the worst of it was in 24 hours with a pretty high fever, you know, congestion. And thank God. Megan is fine. We need to get Megan back to school, but that's another topic. Yep. She's a young kid, right? This is this is what we've learned about how everyone says, oh, kids are resilient when they're trying to justify keeping them out of schools and other harms. Kids are actually resilient, meaningfully, against the disease itself, against the virus itself. And Megan is just another example of that, an anecdote that proves and fortifies the overwhelming statistics. However, her parents, Bobby and Christine, are kind of on the struggle bus here. Let me ask you this, because Bobby tested positive. Your husband tested positive. You had been testing negative, but sometimes the way this has worked is you test negative until you don't. Even if you have some symptoms, this is what happened with my dad, for example, leading up to Christmas, because he wanted to test before everyone showed up from out of town even though he had some symptoms of a cold. And we didn't know if it was a cold or if it was COVID. So we did the nose swab and the whole thing and the at-home test that I took, you know, like seven of when I had it back in August, and it came back clean, negative test. So he said, okay, I mean, that's the best we can do. Two days later, with everyone at the house, and it's Christmas Day, Thank God we could move everything outside because it was still warm. We didn't have this snowstorm, for example. Then he tests positive that morning. So you test negative until you don't. Bobby tests positive. You had been testing negative. Have you tested positive since or no? Well, that's a great question. Um, I have not tested at all because I cannot find a test anywhere. I Okay, so... Pause that Pause that thought real quick. Do you, because there's a chance, again, I think it's pretty remote. There is a chance that Bobby has it and you don't. Like Adam has it right now and I don't. When I had it 
back in August. He didn't get it. It is possible for people living in the same house to coexist where one person gets it, the other one doesn't. Different immunities, different things, you know, there, there are factors at play. Are your, this is a key question, I think. Are your symptoms similar to Bobby's? Almost identical. Almost okay. identical. The only, the only difference, and I was telling Wyatt this this morning, was last week I had major, we'll put it nicely, gastro issues that were bad. And Bobby's now getting that. So they're a little reversed. But all oh, the cold, yeah, it's very strange. And, and that is an Omicron symptom, actually. Yep, no, uh, we've than, seen that. In my household, too. That was Ugh. also a precursor. That was a precursor to the more traditional symptoms in all yep. three cases that developed here at this house over the holidays. So, again, I'm not Dr. Manny, right? We just had Dr. Manny on the show <laughs> earlier this hour. I'm no Dr. Manny here. In fact, I have a, a mere bachelor's degree in journalism. However, I'm willing to quasi-diagnose producer Christine Cookie with the cookie COVID. I think this is almost indisputably COVID. If your symptoms are the same, like identical, basically, as your husband, who's living under your roof, sleeping in your bed, and is positive for COVID. Like, I don't think it takes a big leap. I think you guys both have it. You just can't confirm it because you can't find a test. Now, this is where I'm kind of curious because you are a real go-getter when you set your mind to something, for example, booking a guest or making a bad decision in life, it is hard to deter you from that. So I would imagine, given your, I would almost say, paranoia for the last two years about COVID and believing around every corner there's COVID, you've got COVID, it's finally hit me. Well, now I think it actually has finally hit you. I would guess that you are just like jumping out of your skin to confirm that with a test, what have you done to try to get a test since you've run out at your house? Um, I know this is going to come as a shock, and you should look at your text message right now from Quiet Wyatt. I am actually not panicking. I don't know why. It's like I worry about the worst things that could. It's called, my therapist says, I have catastrophic thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think about all worst-case scenarios. But when actually something happens and it's bad, I go into, like, survival mode, and I'm actually pretty calm. Very strange. So, yes, I worried for two years. I mean, crazy, crazy worry. Now (laughs) I'm pretty sure I have it. I'm like, all right, well, we're going to just, you know, we're going to put our heads down, and we're going to get through this, and it's going to be okay. (laughs) Wyatt is confirming, by the way. He texts in. Please note for the record, I did not receive any panicked phone calls from Christine over the current COVID outbreak. I'm very proud. LOL. New year. New cookie. Well, let's not go that far here. But I I understand that. You can catastrophize something. You can think in your mind like, oh, my gosh, all these horrific things like the parade of horribles is going to be visited upon me if this happens. And then you actually get it and you're like, okay, well, this sucks and it's very unpleasant, but it's not the end of the world. I'm going to get through it. All the things Guy has been saying are correct. And now I'm in it. So why bother worry anymore? And you just kind of go weirdly to like a Zen place. I can kind of understand that. But I still would think it's not a panic. You would want to just know for sure that you have it. 
and it should be easy to do. You should just be able to swab your nose, get the thing, see the line in red, show up, and then say, okay, I'm having my moment here with COVID, but you've been unable to do that because how many places would you estimate you have called trying to find rapid tests? Oh, I mean, we're in the 20s now. I, I mean, I, wow. I, I don't, I have uh, Judgey Joyce calling. I have my sister in Pennsylvania. I mean, we are all over the place trying to find more tests. And it, it is almost laughable. It's, it's, it's funny. Uh, my mom says this because I haven't been out of the house, but she said that you go to stores and there's signs now. Like, you can't even ask. and They don't even want you to ask. There's signs before you walk in the store saying, no, we do not have tests. Okay, so funny you should mention that. On New Year's Eve, I had to go over to our local CVS to pick up something for Adam. He had tested positive the day before he needed something from the pharmacy he wanted some like gatorade or whatever so i walk over to cvs in our little neighborhood here and i go to the pharmacy and i'm chatting with the pharmacist who happens to be a very uh, striking man i'm like oh hello pharmacist and there's one of the signs that you mentioned like no like we do not have the covid tests we are sold out at this time we are sorry for the inconvenience basically like don't ask so rather than asking i made a statement i said oh, it's a shame about the testing shortage. It's crazy. Uh, We're running out of them at our house, obviously. We had one left. And he sort of furtively looks around, glances, lowers his voice, and says to me, we actually got some today. I don't have them here, but they're up front. You have to talk to that guy, but be cool about it. (laughs) So... I guess I had accidentally hit the jackpot. They had gotten their shipment. Now, they were already almost out. I guess the word had not really spread like crazy. I could see when he went to go get them, there were maybe 20 or 30 boxes left, like kits left. And they were limiting four per person. So I was like, fair enough, I'll take four. But they clearly were not trying to advertise it because there'd be a run on these things. And he was telling me as soon as they get them in, They sell out immediately, and he thought the fact that it was New Year's Eve may have actually helped the situation, because I went kind of late in the day, and they had not sold out yet, but I just got lucky there. And a lot of these other pharmacies, they make it really hard. If you call, it's really hard to even get a person on the phone. They're just bombarded with these questions. Have you considered, Christine, getting in one of these lines and going for a free PCR test that the government's offering somewhere? I had thought about it until the weather here has turned to, you know, 20 degrees. And no, uh, being thick as I am, uh, I'm not going to stand on a two to three hour line to go get a test, which probably is going to tell me something that I already know. Yep. So, no, I think, I think know, that's if, right. If, if it gets worse, you know, like I have a, a telehealth appointment with my doctor. They, they won't even let you, by the way, in the doctor's offices. If you even think, you know, I explained my situation to him, and he's like, no, you cannot come here. They do not want you. <laughs> like, I'm sick. I don't know if I have COVID. I can't get a test. Can you please see me? Well, no, you might have COVID. So you can't come here and see us. Go get a test first. I mean, it's just this crazy cycle that we're in. I do have to ask you one more question. And this is a little bit inside baseball, but I think most of our listeners <laughs> will get it. How often have you been texting or calling poor Dr. Nicole Sapphire throughout this ordeal? Um, so, well, 
you know, the good thing is we have a, a few Fox News doctors. Oh, so you're, so you're rotating I, through them. When I feel that I, I've uh, reached my limit with her, I'll <laughs> go to Dr. Manny. And then I'm thinking by tomorrow, um, Dr. Siegel is going to, you know, get a call for uh-huh. me. So Then all of a sudden, Neshwat, well. Neshwat's going to get it. I feel yeah. like it, it might be worthwhile having Sapphire back on the show just to diagnose you because Dr. Guy here, who's not a doctor at all, has unofficially diagnosed you as having COVID. I feel like she's probably more of an authority on this than I am, but... I'm guessing she's going to agree with me and be like, yeah, obviously it's COVID. And obviously you should just be sick at your house and not venture out to confirm something that we all already know. Well, she did tell me that. She she was oh. the one that basically said, well, you, go. you have it. And she told me to go get the oximeter, you know, to, and I had a neighbor uh, go buy that for me and, you know, just to check it. And uh, I'm actually Like your oxygen, oxygen levels? Yeah, if it hits below 95, you know, you got a problem. So, but you're um, doing, I assume, not even, fine. Yeah, I'm completely fine. But don't forget, I also have a direct number to my regular doctor, who's been my doctor for over 20-some-odd oh, years. Oh, yeah. No, you, you definitely blow up people's phones at times. And so I'm sure you've been very busy, but not too panicked, according to Wyatt, which is very impressive. Also, it sounds likely that you have Omicron, because Omicron is less likely to cause breathing problems. And your oxygen levels are good. So that's all very encouraging. And hopefully we'll have our meeting tomorrow for the show and you'll sound better. You haven't been doing any coughing during the segment. That's impressive. Hopefully a good sign. And then we'll get an update on your condition. We actually have another fun topic already for the home stretch tomorrow. So uh, I'll just put it out there that the home stretch tomorrow is going to be eventful and enjoyable and hopefully not cookie free. We want cookie on the mend. Here for the home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Back here, same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great night. Thanks for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.